Good morning, church. My name is Ron Sanchez. I'm a member here at Redemption, and I also have the privilege of serving as pastoral assistant here. And uh, the blessing of being able to read this morning's scripture, if you'd turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Ron. If you keep your Bibles open this morning to uh, Matthew 16, that's where we're going to start. And if you would just join me in praying for our time together now. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this passage. And we thank you for your unfolding plan of redemption that we have had the chance to look at these last two, now three weeks. And today, God, we pray that that plan of redemption would snap into clearer focus for us than it ever has before, God. Uh, if there is a sermon I've ever preached to basically explain why it is I want to give my life to, to preaching and pastoring and planting local churches, this is it. Because I truly believe that Christ is king. I truly believe that that king has a church. I truly believe that that church has been entrusted with your mission. And so help us to see this plan. Help us to see it, how it unfolds in the story of Scripture today. And help us to glorify you as we are shaped by these things as a church together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week I took a break from preaching, I'm sorry, writing rather the sermon. And I just kind of had lunch and I watched a little YouTube interview uh, by uh, between Ben Shapiro and Russell Brand. And if you don't know who they are, that's a very interesting combination. Um, both of these are very famous internet personalities. Russell Brand is known as being very liberal and secular. Uh, ben Shapiro is known as being very conservative culturally, politically, and uh, an Orthodox Jew as well. They're both sort of provocative in their own ways. But it was interesting to hear people with such different worldviews talking about things like uh, culture and politics and morality. I tend to love those kinds of discussions. Maybe you can tell. Um, but as I listened to this, my ears really perked up when Russell Brand started talking about this sermon series at Redemption Church. Now, he didn't mention Redemption Church by name, uh, but here's what he said. You're going to see exactly what I mean. Here's what Russell Brand said in this conversation about the world and how we can flourish in it. He says, what I'm sort of interested in is how can we here now create a kingdom that is a reflection, whether you believe in God or not, he says, of the kind of values that God is undergirded by? He said things like love, oneness, kindness, allowing people to be who they are, and so on. In other words, he's saying, what if we could start some kind of a kingdom, right, uh, that doesn't rage? Uh, what if we were to create just an idea, some sort of a system, if you will, or, or maybe a society in which life actually works the way that God intended it to? You have to admit, uh, that is a beautiful vision. Uh, in many ways, it's, it's very strikingly similar to what we saw as God's grand vision uh, in Genesis chapter 1. This is the hope. This is the longing of the entire story of the Bible and ultimately the Christian faith. Uh, but I want, I want you to notice 
part of his definition of this kingdom includes allowing people to be who they are. Now, at, at first glance, right, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. It doesn't sound like a bad idea. Uh, certainly, insisting that people be who they're not seems really abrasive and very cruel. I, I don't think that's certainly the solution to this. And yet his definition assumes that there's nothing wrong with who we are. It, it assumes that if everyone in the world were just left to, quote, be themselves, that the result would be love and kindness and oneness. And what we've seen in this series so far is that the truth is, it is our desire to be and to define ourselves apart from God that is the very reason that the nations rage. We've seen this two weeks ago. The reason this world is filled with raging nations is because we have all turned from the God we belong to. We have resisted him so that we can, in a sense, be who we are apart from him. And the result of that, by the way, we see very quickly in the story of Scripture, was not love and kindness and oneness. The result of this is chaos. It's sin. It's death. It is raging, and the hope, the longing of the entire story of the Bible is that all these raging nations, all these people groups would remember and turn to the Lord. And so what I want us to just to see is how relevant these topics are that we're discussing as we look at the work of missions. I want us to see that these are the questions we've always been interested in. Regardless of the times, we want to know how can we flourish together on the earth? Last week we saw that God has begun this process of ushering in a new kingdom. And he's done it by sending us his son, who is the true king that all nations really need. He has sent us the gracious, righteous, eternal, resurrected king, Jesus Christ, who was crushed by one of these raging nations, and then rose again in victory as our eternal heavenly king. He offers us eternal life. He offers us the forgiveness of sins. He offers us citizenship in this new heavenly kingdom of his, a kingdom that is is not quite of this world. It doesn't work the same way. So the nations we saw now have a king. But we still have a world full of raging nations. And so this next act of our missions play, if you will, uh, we're going to see how this new heavenly kingdom is supposed to spread on the earth. And it turns out what we're going to see is that this kingdom that Russell Brand was talking about already exists on the earth. And it exists in local churches like ours. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking. Listen, I've been, I've been part of this church. It's great. It's not that great, okay? I'm sure that might be what you're thinking. Uh, maybe you're even thinking, listen, local churches have actually caused me a great deal of pain in my life. It, it doesn't actually work this way. And listen, there's, this is, there's truth to this. Certainly, local churches are not perfect. And in fact, they weren't even perfect in the New Testament as soon as they began. We can see that. Local churches do exist still in a fallen world, absolutely. This kingdom has not come on the earth through local churches in its fullness. Absolutely, that's true. But what we're going to see today, church, is our big idea, is that Jesus has entrusted his kingdom to local churches. Jesus has entrusted his kingdom to local churches. Now listen, I want to give you the big idea right up front today. Because I am convinced that many, many Christians today do not actually believe this sentence that's on the screen. Many of them don't. In fact, I was a Christian for about a decade before I started to see this truth in Scripture and actually believe that it was so myself. Uh, But when I did, again, I I was so gripped by what I've seen here in the New Testament that I had to give my life to pastoring and multiplying local churches. I had to do it. And so what I want to do today is I want to spend the rest of our time persuading you that this sentence is true. That Jesus has entrusted his kingdom to local 
churches. I consider this one of the greatest passions of my ministry because I am convinced that when we just compare most people's experience and opinions of the local church to what the Bible clearly says about these local churches, there is a huge chasm between those two things. Huge. And this really matters because we're going to see, according to Christ himself, these local churches are the key to advancing his kingdom. They are the key to his strategy for redeeming the nations. So again, we're going to spend most of our time in the Gospel of Matthew today. If you're not already turned there, go ahead and open your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. So go ahead and turn there. And first, in Matthew 16, we're going to start in verse 13 there in that section. We're going to see that Jesus gave his church the keys to the kingdom. Jesus gave his church the keys to the kingdom. This is the passage that Ron has read for us today. In this passage, Jesus asks who everyone thinks he is. He asks his disciples, who are people saying I am? And they say, oh, there's tons of different ideas, mostly different Old Testament figures come back from the dead. Uh, and then he asks them point blank, okay, who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Peter says this in response. He says, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. Now, this is a huge turning point in this story because this is the very first time that one of Jesus' disciples are starting to actually get it. Peter is starting to understand what we saw last week, that Christ has come as the promised Messiah King of the Old Testament. And as soon as Peter confesses this, that Jesus is the Christ, here's what Jesus says to him. He answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here's the key. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It seems like a big deal. I just want to point out, uh, clearly, the church was not an afterthought for Jesus. Clearly. Because as soon as Peter actually confesses that he's the Christ, he immediately promises to build his church. And, and so it's almost as if this is pretty central to the plan here. This is kind of why he's come, right? And, and apparently that's true because this church is, even we see here, going to storm the gates of hell. That sounds, again, that sounds really important to me. Right? They're going to storm the gates of hell, and those gates are eventually going to collapse. They're going to fall. They're not going to prevail. In other words, this church will storm hell and win. So Jesus is giving us a word picture here of a clash between two spiritual kingdoms. He, King Jesus, is going to raise up a church to conquer the kingdom of hell on the earth, which is exactly why he says next, look with me here in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Christians have debated that verse for centuries. In many ways, the story of church history is the story of the church debating how this works. There are some big questions here we need to consider. Uh, what exactly are these keys? Um, who is Jesus giving them to here exactly? Uh, who has them today? What does all this mean? Right? Now, there is a lot of confusion over these questions, but some things here are very clear, and so let's just start with the things that are clear. Okay? First, anytime you give someone the keys to something, like your car, for example, you are entrusting it to them. You're not giving it to them per se. It's still your car, uh, but you're allowing them to operate it. And, and in, in the sense of a car, usually this is because you trust them to drive it in a way that you would want it to be driven. Uh, you don't just hand the keys of your car to anybody. And this is the point. King Jesus has come to be this righteous king of all nations. He's come to redeem the raging nations into a new and heavenly kingdom, but soon he will rise from the dead and he will ascend to heaven where he now sits on the throne and he has ever since. In other words, he's not here. 
He is not on the earth to reign as king. And so the whole point of Jesus raising up this church appears to be so that they can represent his kingdom on the earth while he is actually reigning in heaven. Now, now that is clearly what's going on here. Scholars of many different traditions absolutely do agree on that point. Um, But one other point is very clear here as well. When Jesus hands over the keys to this kingdom, it involves this responsibility. It comes with this responsibility to bind and loose. Now, to bind in this way is to gather in or to claim someone as a subject of the kingdom. And to loose in this way is to let them go or to release someone from the authority of the kingdom. Now, that point is not particularly controversial either. Uh, Most respected scholars do agree this is what it means to bind and to loose. The controversy comes when we consider, okay, who is supposed to actually do this and, and how does it work in real life? Your answer to that question will depend on who you think has these keys today. Who did Jesus give them to and who has them now? Now, for instance, uh, the Catholic Church has always taught that Jesus gave these keys directly to Peter, to one man, and in doing so, he made Peter the very first pope. Therefore, only their one worldwide institution, which is led by the pope, has the keys to this kingdom. To be bound to the Catholic Church is to be bound in heaven. To be loosed from the Catholic Church is to be loosed in heaven. They are the only true church on earth. Protestants, I'm sorry, let me just point out, there's a couple problems with that. Okay, I gotta gotta say this. Uh, uh, the, The first problem with that is that there is no mention of a pope in this passage explicitly, nor is there a mention of any pope in any passage in the entire New Testament. Uh, Peter wrote himself two letters which are included in the New Testament. He does not refer to himself as the Pope, and he does not write as if he does have some unique authority over the church like a Pope. In the book of Galatians, Paul's actually going to tell us that he publicly calls out Peter in front of the church because he was, quote, out of step with the gospel, which sounds like something you would not do to a Pope. And there's also no clear historical evidence that the early church ever had a pope until about the 3rd or 4th century. It seems like that would have been a later development in the history of the church. Protestants, on the other hand, which we are a Protestant church, which basically means you're not a Catholic church, have taught in varying different degrees here that Jesus gave these keys to all true local churches through Peter because he professed his faith in the gospel. That's why he did it in that moment. In other words, all true local churches who confess the gospel together have been entrusted with these keys, whether they're part, whatever organization or denomination they may be a part of, or even if they're not a part of one at all. As long as they are a local church that preaches the true gospel to gather the nations into the Christ's kingdom, this is who Protestants historically have, have believed has the keys to the kingdom. Uh, Meanwhile, modern Christians have adopted a a new position on this question, which is basically, I don't really know who has these keys, but this is incredibly uncomfortable, and can we please talk about something else? That is actually probably the most popular position uh, on this question these days. We're constantly told, just focus on the gospel. Jesus died, he rose again. Don't worry about all that other stuff, the churchy stuff. Just focus on the gospel. But but then why is it that as soon as Peter first proclaims the gospel, Jesus starts handing out these keys? It seems as though the gospel and the keys to this kingdom are meant to be connected in some way. And this is my burden. This is my burden, church. Our view of the local church has steadily declined until now many Christians just see it as basically unnecessary. Even though clearly, and I want want you just to grapple with this, King Jesus is handing over the keys of this kingdom to someone. (laughs) We could just agree on that. Uh, This is my plea for you today. As complex and unintuitive as this may seem, we have to do something with this, right? Someone on earth, has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It would just be so great if Jesus just told us 
what these keys are and how to use them, <laughs> uh, that would have made this so much easier uh, in so many ways. Um, go ahead. What's my next slide? Oh! He did. He told us how to use the keys to his kingdom. Look with me at Matthew chapter 18. If we just keep reading Matthew's gospel, two chapters later, Jesus explains these keys. And in Matthew 18, he teaches his disciples what to do if a fellow Christian sins against them. And you may be familiar with this. We're supposed to go to that brother in private to try and address that sin. If he listens to us, if he repents, great. Mission accomplished, we go back to life in the kingdom. But if he doesn't listen to us, we're supposed to bring another brother or sister to sort of try again. More kingdom representatives. Then Jesus says this in Matthew 18, starting in verse 17. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, that is multiple brothers and sisters, he says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? It means a member of the nations and not a member of the covenant kingdom. And then right away, Jesus clarifies this is exactly what he meant two chapters ago when he told us about the keys of the kingdom. He says, truly, I tell you, right? I really meant what I said two chapters ago. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's saying this here is what that means. This is what it means to bind and loose. For he continues, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I just want to point out, Jesus is assuming that if you are a follower of his, you will be a part of a local church that sin issues can be brought to. You will be a part of a local church that you can either choose to listen to or to ignore when they address your sin. So if you've been thinking in your Christian life, look, Jesus doesn't really care if I join a church. Listen, this is proof. No, he absolutely does. He expects all of his followers to be committed members of specific local churches. And, and that right there, church, is the idea that God just opened my eyes to, particularly over the course of seminary, and it just revolutionized my understanding of the Christian life and the work of God in the world. The truth is, the New Testament has no category for a Christian without a church. It doesn't have that category. Uh, we invented that category. Uh, we invented it about 100 years ago, and it has proven to be a terrible invention. Uh, I want you to notice, uh, if you thought that Jesus was promising to build the universal church back in chapter 16, well, that can't possibly be because how do we bring a sin issue before the universal church? You can't do it. This is one of the many New Testament passages that you frankly cannot obey unless you are a part of one local church. The truth is the New Testament does not distinguish between the universal church and local churches in the way that we like to distinguish today. As if it's perfectly normal for a Christian to be part of the universal church and, and never even darken the door of a local church. In the New Testament, the way we join the universal church is by trusting in Jesus, repenting of our sins, being baptized, and joining a local church. The New Testament doesn't separate those things in the ways that we often do today. This passage also shows us, I think with crystal clarity, who Jesus has entrusted the keys to and who has these keys today. I want you to notice he doesn't say, listen, if they, if they still don't listen to you, go find Peter. Go tell the Pope. He doesn't say that. He says, bring it to your church. And so, so apparently, according to Jesus, this church he's building is made up of earthly, visible local churches where his disciples can help one another to live according to the principles of his kingdom. And it is in these local churches, in particular the members of these churches, who together have been entrusted with the keys. You with me? 
what I'm about to say right now is probably going to break some of your categories. This category had to be broken for me too. I've been there. I get it. Bear with me. I'm going to break your categories today. To be bound to one of these local churches is to be bound in God's kingdom in heaven. To be loosed from one of these local churches is to be loosed from God's kingdom in heaven. Okay, are we still, anybody want to leave yet? Nope, okay, we're good. All right, let's keep going. Uh, Now, of course, local churches can misuse these keys. That's possible. Of course, we could get this wrong. We're not infallible. Uh, We also, by the way, don't get to decide what qualifies someone to be in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. Our King Jesus has come preaching that we enter this kingdom by repentance and faith in the gospel. That's it. And remember, it is King Jesus himself who is building his church all along. He promised to do it. He's going to do it. He's doing it through us. But he has entrusted the keys of his kingdom to that church while he sits on the throne of heaven. And that church is made up of local churches like ours. In fact, uh, if you're a member of our church, you've actually seen this taking place in the life of our church. Uh, This happens every time we vote to welcome new members into our church. Every time we welcome new members, they get up, they tell us they believe in the gospel, they want to commit to following Jesus with us, and what happens? All the current members of our church who are present in that meeting vote to say, yes, amen, come on in. We want to follow Jesus with you. This is why we do it that way. Now, when we do that, we are not making anyone a citizen of heaven. Again, we don't get to decide what makes someone a citizen of heaven. They have to confess faith in the gospel just like Peter. But what we're saying is that as far as we can tell, their profession is credible. We see that in their life. uh, And therefore, as far as we can tell, They are citizens of heaven. This is what it means to bind. And this is why, during our members' gatherings, uh, we also let everyone know if members have left the church for any number of reasons. If they move away, uh, Brady moved away. We brought him up. We prayed over him. He left. He's back here visiting today. It's kind of cool. He's here for a week. Hey, welcome back. But this is why we, we do it this way, because this stuff really matters. Look, any member can leave our church at any time. even for any reason. I hope you can see you shouldn't do that lightly based on what we see in the scriptures. This is a a meaningful spiritual decision. Um, This is not a cult. It's not a cult. Uh, But it is a church. And Christ has entrusted his church with the keys to his kingdom. And so when people do leave, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not Christians. Of course, they can be uh, bound to the kingdom at another local church. Even here in our city, they can. We have that luxury, at least, Uh, in in our time and our place, but it does mean that for any number of reasons, they are not asking us to play this role in their spiritual lives anymore because either we can't, they moved away, or they want to be somewhere else or worship somewhere else. Uh, They're no longer committing to follow Jesus with us in their day-to-day lives. Uh, We are no longer responsible for disciplining them in this way if they were to fall into sin or vice versa. We should absolutely love and care for them, celebrate when they come back and say hi to us, But it is not our job to sort of vouch for their salvation in this way or to confirm uh, to the best of our ability they're a citizen of heaven. This is what it means to bind and to loose. Uh, This spiritual process, which we call church membership and discipline, is how Christ himself has told us to use the keys to his kingdom. And it's supposed to be, supposed to be how the world can tell the difference between the raging nations and the kingdom of God. Now, you might be thinking again, I just want to sympathize with you guys here today, okay? How can this be? I've been a Christian so long, I've never heard this. I I get it. I'm telling you, I get it. I was there for a decade. I didn't even think about these things. What I want to do next in our third point is just to look at the sweep of the New Testament here, just briefly do a little drive-by. And I want to show you all of the evidence for this that local churches actually represent the kingdom of God on earth. They're basically like embassies. If you know what an embassy is, uh, the United States has all kind of embassies in other nations. It's basically a little representation of the United States in a totally different place. That's basically how local churches work. Uh, Christ's kingdom is in heaven, and we're embassies 
of that kingdom here. We represent that kingdom among these other raging nations. Now, again, there are so many New Testament passages I could point us to to reinforce this idea that local churches are embassies of the kingdom of God. I just want to, it's worth pointing out, the entire New Testament is written to, for, and by these local churches. So there's that. That's pretty good evidence. Um, But, for example, uh, we could look at the book of Acts. When the apostle Paul, before he was the apostle, was persecuting members of these local churches until Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and he says to him, why are you persecuting me? Well, that's interesting. Uh, To persecute a member of these local churches apparently is to persecute King Jesus himself. How would that be? Or we could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul literally just tells that church, a local church in Corinth, we are ambassadors, he says, of Christ. We represent this kingdom on the earth. Or in in Colossians 1, where he says to a network of local churches that God has delivered us, that is me, the Apostle Paul, and you, the members of the churches I'm written to, he's, he's, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. There are even specific names listed at the end of that book because he knew exactly the church he was written to, writing to and the people he was addressing. Or we could look at Philippians 3.20 where he reminds that local church, our citizenship is in heaven. These are all over the place. Frankly, this is why Paul gave his entire life to preaching the gospel and to multiplying local churches among the Gentiles, among the nations, as Carl read, uh, so that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. But if you want to hear it from Peter instead, (laughs) uh, he told the network of local churches that they were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, even though they weren't a nation at all. They were a network of local churches that was made of disciples from among all nations. Uh, we even saw this just recently in our series in 1 John when John told us that he preaches the gospel that we might have fellowship with him. And he said our fellowship is fellowship within these churches is fellowship with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. He is alive in us in these churches helping us to love one another, helping us to live righteously. And he explained that those who abandoned the gospel and left these churches, they went out from us because they were not of us. It's exactly what he was talking about. Exactly. Or I could tell you about the time Jesus gave John a series of heavenly visions in the book of Revelation to encourage his persecuted church here on earth. And when he addressed that book, he addressed it to several different local churches. He even refers to them throughout the book as the churches. So I want you to see, as convoluted as this may seem in our world today, it is actually fairly clear in the Bible. The particulars and the, 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 all the logistics of it, absolutely. But the idea that Jesus has entrusted his kingdom to local churches, it's, it's hard to miss. But there is no better example of what this means for the nations than the book of Ephesians. And in particular in chapter 2, where Paul addresses Gentile Christians in that local church. In other words, he is writing to the Ephesian church members who not long ago were members of the raging nations. Not long ago. Here's what he says to them. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, those of you who are not Jews, those of you who were not citizens of Israel, remember, he says, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, he says, in the world. In other words, he's saying, listen, don't forget, God used to just have one earthly kingdom. It was the nation of Israel. And you, friends, were not a part of that. You were part of the raging nations that Israel was meant to redeem. And when you were, he says, you were lost. You were hopeless. You were without God in the world. But here's how all of that changed for these Gentile Christians in this local church. Here's how God redeemed these church members from among the nations. He says, but now in Christ Jesus... 
You who once were far off, you who were outsiders, you who were not Israelites, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. He says, citizens of what? Citizens of King Jesus' kingdom. And he says, members of the household of God. In the very next chapter, he even prays, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Well, when? Like just the first century? No. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Now, why would he say that? Why is he so concerned about God being glorified in the church? What, what is that about? This is what it's about, church. Jesus has entrusted his kingdom to local churches. And this is his plan to redeem all nations into the kingdom of heaven. For now, he's entrusted the keys of that kingdom to local churches like ours. So that as more and more people hear the gospel and trust in Christ and join these churches and obey his teachings together, as all of that happens, his strange, peculiar, heavenly kingdom will grow, even in a world full of lost, raging nations. Church, the king has a church. And next week we'll see the church has a mission. But before we wrap up, I want to stop here and I want to reflect on just a few takeaways for us. Everything we've seen, I want to reflect on a few takeaways concerning the local church and God's plan for the nations. Okay? The first thing I want to share as a takeaway, listen, if I convince you of one thing today, please let this be it. If I convince you of one thing, I want to convince you of this, that local churches are way more important than we think. Way more important. Now these days, at least in my experience, most Christians see no connection between their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and their membership in a local church on earth. You see no connection between those two things. Uh, we tend to see local churches as basically faith-based nonprofits that provide a series of goods and services uh, to us for a spiritual purpose. Uh, and if we have maybe a conflict in those churches or if we uh, prefer the goods and services provided by another church, we just sort of leave. We unbind ourselves and we just go. Increasingly, Christians are, are, are comfortable not even attending a church at all. They can just stay home, listen to a podcast, or even watch a stream online. But I want us to see, in light of everything we've just looked at, this is a huge problem with huge kingdom implications because the assumption here beneath the surface is, yeah, God doesn't really care about my involvement in a local church. He just wants me to trust in Jesus personally. And if I do that, it's fine. Everything else is going to be good. And look, certainly we do need to trust in Jesus personally. Absolutely. We're not less passionate about that. We're, we're more passionate about that. That is the basis of our fellowship in the local church. But what I want us to see is that we have personalized and privatized the Christian life in a way that the Bible simply does not do. Most Christians just assume local church has no real spiritual significance for me. Um, I, I can get there when I'll get there. When I do worship at a church, I guess I'll go to that one. Maybe I'll give some money. Meanwhile, our risen king has entrusted the keys of his kingdom to these local churches. So do we see the chasm I'm talking about here? It's huge. Now, we know that the history of the church and even the life of the local church today is very dysfunctional. Uh, that's true. And, and it's troubling. It should trouble us. Um, there's no doubt about that. But it also shouldn't surprise us either. Uh, because even if we read the New Testament, these local churches were pretty dysfunctional then, <laughs> even right after Jesus gave them the keys to the kingdom. It's also true uh, that throughout the centuries, Christians have disagreed about how churches should relate to one another. Uh, this has led to any number of denominations. It's led to lots of confusions. And to the extent that some people just want to give up on the whole local church project altogether, that's just not going to work. It's not going to happen. And in some ways, I'll say, I, I understand that confusion. I really do. On top of all that, some local churches and even denominations have abandoned the true gospel altogether. Uh, they do not preach salvation in Christ alone. In some cases, they don't even believe in a literal resurrection. And so listen, this is messy. 
It is complicated. There are many reasons to be confused about the local church, many obstacles and barriers to what we've seen today. I totally understand how you might feel that way. I really do. Uh, But none of that changes this. King Jesus has promised to build his church. He has entrusted local churches like ours with the keys to his kingdom, and he has also promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so how much more so a little confusion, right? That should not stop us from joining King Jesus in the building up of his church. I want to suggest to you today that we do not need to untangle every question we have about the nature of a local church before we start taking passages like this seriously and just trying to abide by them. It's very simple. It's very simple. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead to conquer your sins and reign forever as the eternal king of creation, then here's what you need to do. Here's your next step. And by the way, this is your first step in being a part of the work of missions. You need to find a local church that really preaches this. doesn't even need to be our church. Uh, Find a church where this gospel is actually the main thing of the church. It's not just a thing. It's the main thing. And the next thing you need to do is join that church. Follow Jesus with those brothers and sisters. Don't just attend. Give a little bit of money here or there so that if you leave someday, it's kind of no big deal. Nobody will even notice. No. Tell them you believe in the gospel. Commit to actually following Jesus with them, and here's the really radical part. Actually submit to this process of discipline in your life. When one of them comes to you and says, hey, I love you, I'm seeing this, I wonder if you might be in sin here. I'm concerned about some of the things you're saying and teaching, maybe about your doctrine maybe. Revolutionary idea, it really is today. Countercultural idea. Don't just leave the church. Don't just leave. Listen. Stay. Look to God in his word with us. I'm just convinced every Christian needs this. And I want to tell you, before I am the pastor of this church, I am a member of this church just like anyone else because I am convinced I need this. We wonder why our churches may be so unhealthy. Why is that? Uh, We wonder why our culture used to be so much more Christian than it is now. And listen, there are many, many reasons for these things. I'm not suggesting I know the only reason for that. But could it be that one huge reason for this is that we have lost the keys to the kingdom? It's kind of like, where did we put those things? Uh, what were those for again? What do those do? I, I, can't, I can't remember. We have given up on this vision of the local churches that King Jesus has entrusted with the keys to his kingdom. And and what I want us to see next is that there is a connection between our passion for the local church and our passion to reach the nations. There is a clear connection between those two. And here's why. It's because number two, the nations are being gathered into local churches. This is the beauty and the glory of what I read from you from Ephesians 2. You who once were far off, you've been brought near. You're citizens in the kingdom. You have it. Local churches following Jesus among every nation is God's answer to the raging of the nations. King Jesus is on the throne, reigning as the eternal king of heaven. Meanwhile, we're down here on the earth in these local churches, proclaiming the good news that he is king so that people can be rescued out of the raging nations and into the everlasting kingdom of God, bound to it with us. And this is how the Great Commission is meant to work. This is why it is so important that we keep the gospel and the local church and its mission at the very forefront of everything we do. More than anything else, church, this is what we need to be all about because this is God's strategy to redeem the nations. He is gathering the nations into local churches. But unfortunately, for many reasons, this is often not how many Christians think of local churches today. If they see a need to join a church at all, many modern Christians are more interested in the personality or the style of the pastor or 
the programs or services that that church offers to them, or even the size of the church or the feel of the church, for example, the right name, the right logo, the right lighting, the right volume of worship, the right atmosphere in the room. Too often, these are the things Christians value in a local church. These are the things we assume will really make a church flourish. But hear me out. I just want to extend our vision of the local church here by saying, not in Iraq, (laughs) not in the slums of Mumbai, uh, not in the jungles of Peru, right? <laughs> we just extend our vision out to the world. We can see that that doesn't work. Um, if we show up to these places with our laser beams and smoke machines to try and entertain people into the kingdom of God, listen, that is not going to work very well. And I want us to see here, this is a big problem. This means that our vision of the local church is very broken Because this is God's plan. He is gathering a spiritual people from among all nations into these local churches. And so I just want to suggest that if our vision for the local church only works in our civil, affluent Western culture where it's safe to be a Christian, then we have a broken vision of the local church. We do not have a biblical vision of what this is and what we're supposed to do. We need a global vision of the local church and its mission that transcends all cultures, that does not change based on context or culture or even time in history. It may look different based on the culture. They may not have a sound system. Uh, They may not have worship guides like we have, may not even have a website or call themselves by a name. may look very different, but we will have the same spiritual priorities. And increasingly, my hope is that it would become normal for us to partner with pastors and churches in other parts of the world who have very little in common with us. Aside from the fact that they preach the same gospel, they baptize new disciples, uh, they follow Jesus with those new disciples, they gather to preach and pray and take the Lord's Supper, and they're trying to multiply churches. So I guess in that sense, we do have a lot in common with them, however different from them we may be in any number of other ways. Because as we give ourselves to these things, church, to this simple biblical vision for the local church, we are taking part in God's redemptive plan to gather his long-lost nations into an eternal heavenly kingdom. My last point of application here is point three, that the Great Commission belongs to local churches. And what that means is that it does not just belong to us as individuals. I'm just, I don't have it. Uh, we have been entrusted with it. Uh, next week's sermon is called The Church Has a Mission. We're going to talk a lot more about how we can work together to take the gospel to the nations and specifically how we want to do that. Uh, so I'll just be brief on this today, but I do just want to explain because it's important that every one of us, every member of our church, is responsible for how we go about this work. Not just the leaders of the church or the elders, uh, not just those of us who enjoy world travel, uh, not just the members of our church who may at some point feel a call to missions. In fact, that call to be a missionary is not even just a personal call. It is a corporate call. In the book of Acts, even the apostle Paul waited on local churches to fast and to pray and to send him off with their blessing before he went to do what he was trying to do. He even refers to himself, by the way, as a minister of the church in order to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And so I want to set an expectation here just briefly that raising up missionaries in the life of our church is going to be a community project for us. If any of you sense a call to missions, which I hope, I pray you will, I'm going to tell you, look, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm so excited about that. I am here to help you and to develop you, and then we'll see what the church says. In general, uh, we are going to watch and see who excels in making disciples here. We're going to develop them. We're going to see if they might sense this call. We're going to pray for them. Our elders will lead us through this process, and then someday when the time comes, Just like we do with members, we will put them up in front of the church, recommending that the church sends them to be a missionary. We will vote to say yes to that. Absolutely. This is the kind 
of disciple and ministry that the nations need. And I want you to see why that is. It's because all of us are responsible for stewarding this kingdom work together. Jesus has not just given the keys of the kingdom to me uh, or to the elders. He's given them to all of us as a church. Now, that may seem really different to you. All of this, frankly, may seem really strange, maybe a little odd to you. And if so, I just want to say, I know, and isn't it awesome? That's exactly what I want to say. I know, and isn't it awesome? Where two or more are gathered in his name, where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is among them. Here we are, gathered together in the name of King Jesus to celebrate the good news that he is, in fact, our king, as we do every Sunday. And my hope is that these passages would give us a profound sense of just how important this is, church. Because the keys of the kingdom are in this room right now. Our risen king is building his church through us. He has called us to take the gospel to the nations, and he has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. What a joy it is. What a privilege it is. And what a responsibility it is to be members of the king's church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this unfolding plan. We thank you that we could come behold the wondrous mystery that in the dawning of a king, uh, you, God, are bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. We thank you that we stand on Christ, the solid rock, as his church, his kingdom ambassadors. And we pray, God, earnestly that you would help us to love one another well. You would help us to follow you together in, in faith and in righteousness, and that you would multiply the fruits of the gospel out from our church, certainly in our community, and beyond that, even to the nations, God. Give us your vision for your church. Empower us uh, to really pursue it together in humility and in love, and help us, God, to look to watch, to see, and to expect you to bring about your kingdom as we do. We love you, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.